Today, I am joined by my mom, Teresa Marshik. Terry, thank you for being here. Thank you, Colton, for having me. So before we get into any conversations, give us a little bit of background into who you are um, as a person, but also academically or in your career field. Right, so you all, um, as my son, got to kind of watch me walk through some of this as I um, developed, went back to school, and went on for more training. At this point, I am a licensed clinical social worker, a certified healing touch practitioner, and I'm just about done with um, my master's in business and have started a healing business called the Center of Love and Acceptance. So wrapped up in raising children, going back for more learning and training, do work really under the mental health umbrella. So, so let's start with healthcare then. And I want to know, since we are still in the midst of a global pandemic, although hopefully on the tail end of it, what has that looked like in the hospitals? Because any, whether you call it conspiracy or you just call it a lack of trust around hospitals comes from people saying that, oh, everyone who had any kind of incident with COVID, although they died of cancer, they call it a COVID death or actually the hospitals aren't really that full. It's just, is a perception thing for the news. What's your experience so far and how can you address these kinds of claims? Thank you for bringing that up. And I certainly have tried to share that with family. Now I'm in uh, physically in Colorado and uh, in two different uh, hospital systems. One's um, I'm not promoting them and I'm not representing them. So I'm not going to say them actually, now that I say that, but they have several hospitals each on their own. Right. And so I'm taking my answer from information that they share system wide from their experience as a whole. And then mostly more personally as a social worker in a hospital and in the ER. Right. So I'm not a nurse. I'm not in the ICU taking care of a COVID patient. Um, but social workers are needed in hospitals everywhere. Lots of reasons. But the thing I want to mostly start with, I'll just call it a mental health impact because regardless if somebody came with COVID and, and the hospitals are pretty full at various times, right? The spikes, the hospitals that I've been in are very full. So I don't know where somebody could deny that. For sure, people are, have been pretty sick with COVID. But I haven't been interfacing with those folks. I've been interfacing with their families, with the people who've lost their jobs, with the people who are on the verge of being homeless and now can't take their medicine anymore. So it trickles down this whole cycle of uh, COVID and um, people's work experience changing. People are at high numbers interfacing with the hospital for lots of reasons, whether they have COVID or not. So my, my perspective is, wow, have hospital systems been impacted? And it's not just with COVID, but it's certainly during those spikes have been full of, full of COVID too. But look at all of the other people are now accessing because they waited too long to go to the doctor because they didn't want to leave their house because a family member visited and now they're sick because um, they can't afford their medicines anymore 
There's lots because they went into a mental health crisis because they can't pay their bills. So there's a lot of a lot of us, uh, people interfacing with hospitals right now for lots of reasons. Does that make sense? That does make sense. And and that's what you hear, um, at least on a, in a more narrow lens, that hospitals are having a lot of uh, people come in, an influx of people with issues, like you said, mental health or physical or, or otherwise. But if you can quantify it or, or compare it in any way to normal, what did those spikes look like? Because even saying spike, to the average person might think, oh, there's more people. Well, of course there are. It's a pandemic. But what does that mean to me? What is, there's too many people and not enough beds. What What are the implications of that in the hospital generally, or more specifically for a social worker like yourself? Right. So specifically, some examples of, I'll say in the beginning, the first, when everyone went on to kind of a lockdown scare, right? Um, what, February, March of 2020? I would say the volume in the in the hospitals and the ER went down. People didn't go to their doctor. Nobody came to the ER. I mean, unless they were literally dying or, you know, sick with COVID or something. They literally couldn't help themselves. Um, there was there was this time period. I don't know if it was a month. I don't, I'm not looking at any data. But um, there was a time period that it was kind of a ghost town in that regard. Doesn't mean the beds weren't full with COVID patients, but the revolution of opening, coming in and out of ERs and urgent cares and freestanding ERs just even closing down and, uh, for temporary re purposes because people weren't coming to them. Sort of like saying, I'm just not going to go to the doctor, take care of it at home because people were nervous or I don't know why people made that decision. They were asked to stay home. So that did happen initially. But then specifically after that, I mean, and people couldn't do that forever because if you didn't have a blood pressure medicine, you could have a stroke or, you know, there's a lot of things that would affect people. But when I'm talking about a spike, we're talking about not being a bed anywhere in the city. So, for example, someone comes to the ER and they really need to be admitted. They really need a, a, a ICU bed. And you're just calling everybody else in your hospital system, calling the entire city, and there's no place they can go. So that's starkly different than my experience for years prior. That's not that's not common. And when was that? This it's lull was as you said March. Let's say when was this overwhelming spike in in a city as you just mentioned? What month would that be? So I don't so I don't actually remember. Somebody listening probably remembers, right? Because if you look at the news where the spikes were. That's when that would happen. And people would be coming to the ER for whatever reason they came and needed to be admitted to a hospital and there just weren't beds anywhere. And sometimes when we use that language, folks in the hospital say there's no beds. It might not mean that there's not a physical bed for someone to, to sit in, right? Because the average person could walk through the hospital and say there's a bed right there sitting in the hallway. Uh, the point is, do we have all the people in place to take care of that person? And nurses, for example, let's say, and I'm not a nurse, respiratory therapist is another example. If you're getting um, volunteering to go to places that need more, if you're getting burned out yourself, I mean, I'm telling you, I personally have met with more than one uh, nurse who had a mental health breakdown and couldn't take any more deaths, couldn't help any more people, attempted suicide themselves. So, so there's a lot of trickle of 
people just moving out of the ICU nurse and they're going to work in a different location. Lots of that shifting going on over the years. So no beds also means do we have enough staff to take care of them and enough resources to take care of that person too. And that's what's a big deal. That's what's really been impacted. All, I think all over the country, not just in the state. And that's an important point to mention because this common argument of balancing our economy with balancing the lives of the older people and immunocompromised people around us was this conversation. And I remember early on, at least by mid-2020, if not earlier, there was this idea of flattening the curve. We were growing so fast, we didn't want to get too full, which it sounds like we either got close or or reached that point temporarily. We, We don't want that because then when we're above capacity, you can't help anyone. But to your point, capacity might mean different things than even I assumed it was. It's not just the physical beds. It's the resources. It's the the manpower. It's all of these things that if you're working extra shifts or you're not prepared for this much trauma, even if you work in healthcare, it's still a major shift from the status quo. It might take a huge toll on not just the individuals, but the system as a whole. Right. I think it's system. And so even every part of it. Right. And that's why there's a lot of discussion about um, I know uh, Trump was still president at that time. Uh, the number of ventilators, that's one piece, right? But also enough people and enough supplies and enough protective equipment to clean the room between people. And that's a pretty big deal, right? Um, and so it, it all, every little thing that um, needs to happen in a hospital, you got to feed the people. And how is the food now going to be distributed so it doesn't carry COVID? How is it going to be packaged? That had to shift. To put more dollars, and I'm not a manager of a hospital. I mean, I'm uh, getting my MBA, so it makes me think about what it would be like to manage the system in a hospital. Uh, but just now put more of your money to packaging the food differently, uh, cooking the food differently, maybe, you know, keeping it separate, the dishes. I don't know. So, but the point is, every single part of how that system functions uh, felt the pressure of the the burdens. Community hospitals, for example, a small hospital like in Thornton here in Colorado, um, older folks who live in the community often will come to the hospital to be around people, to eat a warm meal for the day. And the same happened when I was at a hospital in Edmond, Oklahoma years ago. And those folks are asked to stay home. Are they getting food? And those, if they came, those cafeterias not open to the public, you know, during COVID. So all those details that um, folks don't think about, right, unless they have to manage hospitals. And so it really isn't just, uh, is there room in the inn? Is, is it functioning so we can take care of you? That's an interesting perspective. I haven't heard before whether from the media or just through day-to-day conversation, that it's not merely frontline workers who are having to deal with this and have had to over this past year, but the managers and the um, and the operations managers and the resource distributors and things like that. Because you're right, there's a lot that happens in these systems, certainly more than I know anything about, that is behind the scenes or isn't publicized or isn't what's on the marketing material. And once 
uh, a pandemic happens, these don't just go away. If people are relying on these resources, whether for better or for worse, and you've mentioned that these have changed in some ways, but I, I wonder, has anything changed back? So at this point, we are in March of 2021. So really one year since people started taking this seriously in some meaningful way, universities closing a year ago and so forth. Has anything changed back from your experience, whether it's, like you said, the infrastructure of the cafeteria or more um, specific, how many guests are allowed with the family? Are you allowed to see your dying loved ones um, when, before they pass away? Because I know at one point that wasn't allowed. What is that looking like right now? Right. So the first thing that popped in my mind when you said, um, has it gone back or, you know, what would just... The one thing which probably doesn't answer your question, and I'll get to your question, that I thought of was the one thing that never changed and is still there, but shifted. Let's talk about what shifted back and what might never shift back, is that hospital systems, and folks who rarely go to the hospital and think about this, are a huge integral part of a community. It doesn't matter if it's a small community or a large community. Um, the location that they sit, the number of people that have nowhere else and no other support system except to come to the emergency room, for example, um, is, is a large, is a stark number of, of folks that use hospital systems, whether it's elderly folks that meet in the cafeteria for lunch, whether it's um, homeless folks who that's kind of how they navigate healthcare, uh, particularly in states, not Colorado, but in states where um, getting state health insurance is particularly difficult. Um, so when you say that that resource is not available to you, it's one of the only resources that they have. So the hospitals never stopped being that resource, but they had to shift quite a bit and pull back for a while. And so in, in moving um, forward, how what's returning, some of those resources are returning, like freestanding ERs um, can be staffed and opened, even though there's no there's no use to help somebody with COVID except to then put them in an ambulance to a, a hospital if they show up there. But we're more equipped to to do that now, right? So freestanding ERs and urgent cares can take more of a volume of folks who are used to using it that way. So that's something that's kind of going back to normal, if you want to call it that. Um, but people aren't, that I'm seeing as a social worker, aren't necessarily back to normal because what did that mean for them before? And some folks never did lose their job as an example, but a lot of folks have. A lot of folks took a pay cut to keep their job. A lot of folks in uh, places where they work don't work, don't uh, aren't open any longer. So the only way to navigate healthcare when your resources d diminish is now to utilize ERs. And, and I'm not saying just because you're bleeding to death, or you think you had a stroke, what if you're the cut on your fingers just not healing up? You could get an infection. You know, I'm not a doctor or anything, right? But people now have to navigate it somehow. Well, explain that because I don't know much about what that means. When I think healthcare, I think ER is if you break your bone and you need to go for an emergency. And then I think doctor checkups whenever you have to do a physical or annual checkups, whatever. What does it mean to say someone doesn't have these resources? So do they go to the ER for X, Y, and Z that normally you would have different resources to to fight? What does that look like? 
Right. So hospital systems can work with our, our emergency medical systems for lots of things. And I'll answer your question in a second. But one thing, for example, they can be locations now to administer vaccines, right? Our whole front lobby is now a vaccine uh, area. And, and how do people get rides that don't have access to the vaccine? So that's a makeshift just because we're working in a time when that needs to happen for our community. So hospitals are part of that. But folks who, for example, don't have, and you, you were raised, I'll just tell you, with the privilege of always having health care, always expecting that you'll have a doctor and that you can go to them if you need them, and it's no big deal. That is, that, that is not, there's a high number of people, but that is not their experience. A high number of people, and I don't have any statistics in front of me, but a high number of people. And if people even do have healthcare, you have a state like Colorado where you can you can get Medicaid if you're not working currently, right? Even if you had it, something else going on before, um, they maybe don't have the wherewithal. Well, I need to go get checked, get a checkup just in case because they're not going to spend twenty dollars on a medicine they didn't think they needed in the first place. They're doing fine right now. As soon as they're not doing fine, I have had a cough, I have a fever. They don't have a physician now to call. Unless they have someone, for example, a social worker, to say, let's navigate this differently. Here's how we can make this happen. But then still someone's like, well, I don't have enough money to take the bus. Uh, I don't have a car. My car's in the shop. You know, so the barriers have compounded. Those barriers always exist for folks. You didn't live that kind of lifestyle. But those barriers, more people are experiencing those barriers now um, because of shift in their job situation or the amount of money, if any, that they're making and uh, had health insurance, don't have health insurance and certainly don't have the money to now pay cash for a doctor. Well, they don't know where the resources are to go to the local mental health, you know, county clinic or something. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but. Well, it does remind me of a, of a follow-up question, um, whether or not that was answered directly. From your perspective, do you think that this privilege or lack of in different socioeconomic communities, for example, is that more physical in the sense that you really don't have equal access to different opportunities, sort of the quote unquote left wing approach that there's just not equal opportunity, there's not equal access, you're not as likely to have a car, physical things, or do you think it's more? quote unquote, right wing take that it's not that there's no opportunities here. We don't need some kind of medical affirmative action just to use that that phrase. We don't need these kinds of things because the opportunities are all there. It's really just a mental failing, a a lack of education or an ignorance, whether intentional or otherwise, and likely not intentional. Where do you think that balance lies? It, and And what is your take on on people who come in that you talk with or families that you meet with, is it a lack of opportunity for many people or is it a lack of understanding what their opportunities are? Wow. I mean, I, I mean, to me, that's a very onion question. It has a lot of layers you could peel. So if I get on a tangent, you want to pull me back because I don't think it's a black and white answer. Uh, I'm in, a, in, a, in an international business course right now, and the professor's a, a man from Brazil 
was talking about, and he works for a university, he's a tenured professor, so I'm assuming he has health insurance. He lives in Texas where this getting a state health insurance is pretty difficult uh, for folks who don't have insurance. But he talked about, um, because healthcare in the United States is, is capitalistic, right? It's for profit. So he talked about two things. One, if you were just going to, from an economic standpoint, he's an economist, talk about the cost for surgery in Texas and the cost for the surgery in California, even though it's more expensive to live in California, the surgery is quite a bit less expensive. So the market is driving some of that. But he would also talk about how the processes, the quality of the healthcare system in our country compared to other countries that he has viewed um, from his experience, there's not a lot of red tape. The process is customer service focused. Why would you not want to be served in this country, right? Or work in this country because there's not a lot of bureaucracy. And, and I don't know if the countries he was talking about were because they're government run or not. Um, and that made them more difficult to, to move through. But everybody then had healthcare too. So in this country, we're talking about, you could have an entirely different healthcare experience in a different state from one state to the other. You could have an entirely different experience with healthcare based on the home you were raised in. You were raised in a home where going to the doctor regularly was valued. We had to use our resources, our car, our time, time away from work, money for co-pays, just to say, yep, you're still healthy this year. But you live, were, were raised in a home where there's value for that. So there's also folks from different countries, different backgrounds, different family systems where interfacing with the healthcare has not been that valued. And it could be lead back to mistrust, right, in, in, the, in the black community, or I'm not an expert on that, but in various communities, the Native American community, lack of trust for good reasons, really. Um, or just the way their family uses um, the elders in the community to take care of things. And they're not, it's not something that's ever been passed down generationally that you run to the doctor for certain things. And so someone's logic might be, well, I haven't been to the doctor, I haven't been sick. Maybe they could afford the copay. Maybe they had insurance, maybe they didn't have insurance. Um, but it, it becomes pretty layered when you start putting all of those things together and then you say, well, you should, right? There's this word should. You should navigate the healthcare system and use it ongoingly. I don't know, maybe I don't, that doesn't have value, for, right? So it's a capitalistic experience and there's, and I'm a customer that, that doesn't see value in it unless they have a heart attack. So that's important. Culturally, it's important. Yes, whether you have access or not is important. So in our country, years ago, years ago, before you were born, EMTALA was passed, meaning you can't turn somebody away from the ER. In a capitalist world, a person can still go to the emergency room and not be turned away. Can't be sent over to the community or the county hospital instead of your expensive hospital. They show up in your ER, you have to, you have to take care of them. But you don't have to take care of them um, other than make sure that they're stabilized, right? That the emergency is over. So that's a good thing, right? Everybody has access to that. Everybody, everybody does. So given that, we now have generations of folks that they know if they need to be seen and they're not sure, even if they're nervous about it, they can go to, and walk into the ER.
and no longer use. I've been in ERs where there's three areas. One is for trauma emergencies. One's for other kinds, right? Somebody could have pneumonia uh, and they need to be admitted, but they've been to their doctor and they're not getting better. And the other section literally is a clinic because people now know that healthcare or not, emergency or not, whatever they need to do 24 seven, it can't be turned away. And this is, like I said, now that's another whole nother generation of folks raised with this idea that, well, why would I do anything else? If I need something, I can go to, to the ER. We've done that. Our, our system has done that. I mean, it's not, there's nothing wrong with that thought. We always say, come back to the ER. Um, and so this layer, in my personal opinion, of why people don't utilize healthcare, how they utilize it differently. I think there's, it's, there's just, it's multifaceted for sure. I like that you couch it like that. Again, you're obviously much more knowledgeable about it than I am, but it's valuable to at least admit complexity. Humans don't like that. We like black and white, generally speaking, but given how, divided we are, or at least the perception of our divisiveness, uh, particularly in America, that's something we can all get behind. Well, actually, some of it's going to be a lack of opportunity. Some of it might be a lack of awareness. It's going to be somewhere in the middle, and let's work together to solve these problems. And maybe that means chipping away at one iceberg on one side of the equation and the other iceberg on the other side. And it doesn't mean attacking the other iceberg, right? Uh, so. I like that you couch it like that in the sense that it's multifaceted, it's complicated, it's this onion with layers. And I really, I really appreciate that. So let's pivot to vaccines. We've been trying to distribute vaccines for God knows how long at this point. And healthcare workers have got it, obviously, you can attest to that. But a lot of people haven't. And now, as of recently, uh, Joe Biden has pushed forward this idea that we are now going to have all of the American population who is eligible for a vaccine vaccinated by June. That's this new, this new plan. And I want to know more about that because sure, you won't know the distribution side, but from what I've seen, there's a lot more people than you would otherwise expect that aren't willing to get the vaccine. I remember seeing a statistic. I don't remember who it was, maybe New York Times or, or Wall Street Journal that upwards of 40% of healthcare workers were not wanting to get vaccines. Now, maybe that was just one state. I didn't read all the details, so feel free to correct me. But as there seemed to be this underlying worry, even from healthcare workers who are supposed to be the ones who are setting this example that, hey, first responders are getting it, healthcare workers are getting it, the only side effects are very minor, and it's much more important that we have a herd immunity, for example. What is that looking like on your end? Correct. So I'll go back to the state and from President Biden, everyone vaccinated by June. I would think the articulation would be more accurate that everybody would have access to be vaccinated by June. And I take it as that. Now, that's an interpretation, probably just based on how I view things, because we're not mandating that people get vaccinated, as you just said. So I'm looking at it like there would be equal access. Everybody would have access brought to them if, if, if they can't go to it. There's enough in the state. It's available to folks who want it. And I don't, so that may or may not you know, obviously affect the herd immunity that you're talking about. But obviously, we do need to move so that 
as a country and as a whole, there's access. That's what I think about, right? And what are the barriers to access? One is having enough vaccine. So that's something he's looking at. Um, correct, though, even healthcare workers themselves aren't all jumping on board. And I thought the number looked a little bit more like two thirds of health, uh, two thirds of healthcare workers are willing to, one third is not. Um, so that's about 33% instead of 40% overall. But that's still a high number. That's a high number. Folks, I know personally, nurses, for example, who are choosing not to get it, um, they get the flu shot. They say that they're required to by their job because they don't get put on the schedule because they have to wear a mask instead. You know, those are kind of some of the things that um, hospitals can do to highly encourage folks because we don't want to get sick ourselves and not have staffing. We don't want to have it and pass it on to somebody else when we walk in their room. Um, so when you look at the flu is nothing like it. I'm not comparing the flu to COVID. I'm just saying that's another thing that hospitals would offer to their staff, a vaccination that people would be highly encouraged to get. But a high, a high number of people get that on their own, willingly. The vaccine's been around longer for a lot of reasons. Um, so is, I've heard people say, well, but COVID, well, there are people who think the conspiracy, there's a conspiracy about it. It's going to do something to you, which even for healthcare workers, educated folks, I find that hard to wrap, personally wrap my brain around. But so, so there are folks who are all the way from that, including healthcare workers, to there's just not been enough testing and I'm still nursing my baby. Pediatricians don't have any data to really tell me one way or the other what to do. I mean, that's reasonable. There is this potential for long-term problems. That's a certainly valid concern. But is it concerning enough that we should let our grandparents die because we wanted to go out in public um, to a party or to a bar or something like that? And when I couch it this way, maybe I'm couching it in a biased way. But is that not the concern here? Is it not this failure of uh, expressing this value proposition well? I'm going to say something that might not seem related, but I think what you're saying, from my perspective, being quite a bit older than you, boils down to how Americans in general, not every family system and not every uh, cultural system in our country, but in general, how Americans really like to be individualists. As you said before, it's hard to mandate things. And so, this individualist mindset, which I certainly don't mind, I mean, read some Ayn Rand and that kind of thing. At the same time, where is the line, as I hear you saying, that we also think about the community, the communal portion, because we also exist as individuals within a system, our family system, our social system, our city that we live in, they're all communities around us. So how do we, um, maybe educate folks where they're at, which is the individualist mindset who also has to function in a community, right? I don't think we address that enough in how we market things because when you just talk about somebody as, I'm going to take away your individual rights, right? A high number of people can't extrapolate or don't want to, or didn't learn that skill or don't think about doing it to say, oh, it might jeopardize some of my civil liberties, but it's for the greater good, or this is how it will impact the community. And there's some talk about 
about that, as you just said, right? Do you want to go get your grandparents sick or risk getting them sick or potentially dying? Um, but we aren't raised, I don't think, as a, a, at large in society, and that might get to how I prefer to raise children and all those things, but in, at, at large, we aren't raised to think about our actions and their domino effect. I mean, in some, some ways, yes, but not pervasively. So, so when you're on the fence, most people are going to step over into the, you can't tell me what to do lane and not as inclined to walk in the lane of what's best for my community. It's not, if you had to choose, right? Most people are going to end up on the, the, the side of the fence for individualism in any given decision, right? I mean, that's how I see my experience in this country. I can understand that completely. I am a big fan of individual liberties. I'm a big fan of the traditional sense of liberalism, of free speech. You can do what you want without too much government intervention. I support all of these things personally. And that's where I think the value proposition, as I said, has been failing us. Because it hasn't been presented, in my opinion, effectively enough to convince people that you need herd immunity. Now, you hear it sometimes, but just saying buzzwords like flatten the curve, even that was an effective buzzword, but it doesn't convince people if they don't know what that means. So when you have something and like herd immunity. And not just what it means, what it means for them in their life. But exactly. Sorry, it's, it's absolutely true. It's almost a political question because so much of our world is, is political and, and arguably for good reason, whether we like it or not. But something like herd immunity doesn't work, at least not as effectively, but in depending on the vaccination rates, doesn't work much at all unless the majority do it, unless we get a vaccine. So the immunocompromised or, or those who can't get vaccinated for whatever reason they don't risk their own lives. It's this interesting challenge of convincing people, uh, but without overstepping some kind of barrier. That yeah, it really is just this value proposition that we have not we have not executed well as a country, as politicians, or even as medical personnel. Given that if we're going to look up to those with this expertise, power, and a third of them to cite your number, um, is, are, are not doing this, then that worries the average person. It really does, right? And there are some campaigns that I have seen, whether it's somebody who's uh, representing a medical community as a doctor, somebody representing an African-American community as a Black person, who are, are there's these campaigns online and on, and on TV saying, you know, uh, or somebody's representing um, just a powerful pos position, an influencer, an actor. I'm get, I'm getting it. I'm okay. I'm done. And we've seen a lot of those videos, right? One of the things I do want to say that is real, not just a marketing tool. Once you've had the vaccine, you can continue the CDC if you choose. You don't have to be tracked, but the CDC will. Um, track your data. And the more people that get it, the more data they have, right? To me, I think that's important. And then you ha it can have some substance to say, here's a good reason to take it, right? Not just, you know. So one of the things we know so far, um, thankfully for people who started taking it even earlier on than this, when we knew even less, right? There's people who did that for us, um, that 
you're about 85% protected, right? Just like the flu shot is new every year. So it's never going to be 100. So once you've had your vaccination, you're, the likelihood of you getting it is, is still pretty low, right? So you know you've now, you have some less risk getting it, passing it on to someone else. So that data continues as well as what are the symptoms? Who seems to be affected? Over time, what age group, what group of folks seem to have worse symptoms than somebody else? And I'm still getting texts where I still update them how I'm doing. And it's nothing for me, nothing's ever happened after that. But if there are people who have, so unless you opt out of that, they're gathering this information and you can look at it, it's published. It's just not part of the news. Maybe we add that as part of the news camp campaigns, right? So you can see what's happening. Here's what we're finding. That doesn't speak to some people, but um, it might add value is my point. Well, and again, that's another difficult spot uh, because look at major corporations right now. What are they being brought to Congress for? For data issues, for having too much data. Now, at the time of recording, just two days ago, Google announced some sort of retraction of their ability to market ads based on your search history and things like that, which I would say is a good thing. I'm all for that because this big scale invisible data is a scary thing. But at the same time, you also want to value data enough to your point that we can help solve issues. So when I saw an update on my on my iPhone multiple times a week for the last however many weeks, dozens, that, oh, click here to become part of the tracking. Well, I don't know what that means. You know, I, I don't know what, what that looks like. Are you going to stay, have some kind of ability to track my phone afterwards? At the same time, we know they could. Companies already are. Do we want to cross uh, cross our, our our data databases potentially? You know, Apple working with Google that's that's a potential issue, right? You lose anonymity across platforms, so that's a valid concern, for example, right? And then there's these other concerns that are totally unrelated about seasonality. If this becomes a seasonal bug, so to speak, like the flu, oh, I'll just get the vaccine next year, come the next season, because I know will have better technology or better vaccines. So there really are a lot of a lot of perspectives at work here that again I think tie into that value proposition. We're not addressing them. We're just assuming moral superiority. Take the vaccine and you're you're morally superior. And, and it's not worded like that. It's obviously not not that explicit, but it seems that way to a lot of people. And I've talked to people who who view it as that and say, oh, I'm morally superior if I do this. That's just the government blowing smoke. I want to see my concerns addressed. And they don't seem to be addressed because addressing someone's data concern isn't going to make mainstream headline news, whereas addressing something more exciting like QAnon definitely will. Right. So so if it's in a capitalist society, it's what, what drives, you know, the, your economy for your the news outlet, for example. Let's talk about for a minute, though, what it makes me think about is so seasonally. So there's a flu shot every year. It's a different strain. People get it. Some people don't. And then there's a high flu season. A lot of people, a lot, not relative to COVID. So it's a relative word. But there are people that die from the flu every year. Numbers this year, and I didn't look this up, so I didn't know the conversation would take this. You know, I did not that it mattered. We're just having a conversation. But the numbers in general of the people that have been admitted and/or deaths from flu in this country are starkly different than year after year after year. 
they're down. Why are they down? We're wearing masks, for example. So we want that data. Do we? Because people want their rights back is what they really want, right? They want their freedoms back. They want their no controls on what they're when they're you know going to work or staying in their house or going out to the bar. And so knowing that you're less likely to get your grandma sick, that she might die of the flu. Did that ever stop you before? No, it wasn't. As, it's not as large scale. It's not as new. Wearing the mask has now done that on a regular flu season. Regular flu season where all the regular folks get their flu shot. The number of people affected by the flu shot is, is nominal. So to me, I find that fascinating because it's like, well, if we just thought about others, when I visit grandma during flu season, you know, I might now wear a mask if I'm hugging her because I don't want her to die of the flu either. The likelihood is low. It's higher in COVID. They're not the same thing, right? It's just something else that also gets a seasonal vaccine. And and I have heard the healthcare um, circles talking about um, the seasonal vaccine combining the COVID and, and uh, the flu there'd be a new one each year. And so then who's going to take it and who's not and what are your risks? But where's the line for people who make decisions? And I'm not one of those folks to say, okay, we can go back to normal. What is normal? Like we can open everything up and do whatever we want and nobody has to be take precautions. But if you think about it, before all this came to light, people should still be washing their hands when they're out in public touching stuff, right? And if you don't want to spread germs, well, but people weren't that concerned because people weren't dying in mass either. They weren't they weren't actually um, filling up the healthcare system so that there was burdens on the healthcare system. So it's like, okay, well, I'll take the risk. So where's the value? Where's the cost benefit ratio? Where where does that lie? Right. That's what I think about when I make decisions in, at large in general. So I'm going to guess cost benefit ratio is going to be considered you know, at some point. And this virus has been especially politicized. And I think not just because we have a divisive climate and because of having a global pandemic at the time and rise of conspiracies and all these things. I actually don't think that's the main reason. But it started in China, and we have weird relations with China right now. It started near a lab. That's no good. That that causes conspiracy thinking right there. It also does worse in people who have higher levels of vitamin D, or you're more likely to be um, feeling harm from COVID if your vitamin D levels are lower. Well, that has racial implications no one's willing to talk about because who has more melanin in their skin and gets less vitamin D from the sun? Someone with darker skin. That's another thing we don't talk about, vitamin D supplements. So there's all of these weird parameters from conspiracies to Trump giving out medical advice prematurely if you want to even call it medical advice, it depends on the on the exact um, conversation we're having, to racial implications, to, of course, socioeconomic implications. That's the almost the most obvious one, however challenging even that is. So there, there are so many factors at play here that make this so much worse. Uh, my suspicion is that if this came at a time, maybe just 10 years earlier, it would have still been crazy. It's the would have been worldwide. It still would have seemed like government overreach to ask people to wear masks and have vaccines, but it wouldn't have been quite to the same level of conspiracy or international um, international relations issues and, and things of that point. Do you do you think I'm right in that in that assumption? 
well, let's add that it was that it was a camp that was a, an election year, right? So you could really buy into people's what you want them to think about it based on how you want them to vote and get emotion stirred up, rather than just saying this is a healthcare issue, right? So to put all of that, what you already said, on top of it was an election year. Um, I just want to say though, from a, I do think different place, different time. I don't know. I'm not a scientist, a research scientist, but I lived through and worked in hospitals when the Ebola crisis was taking place. And people were prepared at much higher levels to wear spacesuits, basically, so that we didn't pass this deathly, deadly, really deadly um, disease to other folks. And it really got halted. It didn't spread throughout our whole country. It did in other countries, but not in, not in America. And, and I haven't actually researched it, I don't know um, why that is, but it was taken seriously. It wasn't part of a political campaign. It wasn't, you know, on the news, one or the other is it's not real or it is real. None of that happened. This was a healthcare crisis. No, this country was scared. People did what they were supposed to. We had very limited cases and it didn't spread. And so on the surface, it looks like all those things you just mentioned. I added that, that it was a you know an election year potentially made it worse. I mean, I was just at least we can say that. Surely, it seems obvious to me that it did. Now, of course, there's different uh, there's differences in the viruses. Ebola was certainly worse to the average person who got it in terms of death rates, but it wasn't as as spreadable to the best of my knowledge. So, with better precautions. It's not as much of an issue, right? But to to your point and the one I'm trying to make as well, and it sounds like we align here, throwing politics, throwing an election in there, like you said, throwing divisiveness, uh, a Trump-like presidential figure, problems with international relations, Chinese New Year, all of this made a crazy hectic time that freaks some people out because then they can say, the flu's bad too. This is all just political. And some of it is, but then that puts a charade around the fact that some of it's not, but we don't know how to decipher those distinctions. Right. So, so that goes to a larger picture of can't, is journalism on capitalist functioning news channels ever going to give us exactly just information or is it always going to have a twist? Right. I mean, per, uh, honestly, I mean, I have an opinion about that. That's not what we're talking about. I'm not sure I want to go that route, but the point just is, we have to be able to trust the information we're getting and it was it was a lot of propaganda during covid in all fairness just to the individual person who's trying to decide to get vaccinated or not absolutely and that that is a interesting conversation too and i also have strong opinions on it but i want to delve deeper into your expertise and your passions so to do that let's change slightly from healthcare in in a physical sense to mental health care what is mental health looking like uh, in the age of COVID, and then we can extrapolate that to the age of the smartphone if we want. But starting with COVID, what is healthcare looking like? Are there more people coming in with healthcare problems? Are suicide rates substantially higher? Uh, what is this problem that seems obvious to me, but I don't hear quite enough about it? So when we talk about mental health, um, I'm going to couch it as everybody has mental health because we all have emotions, we have a mind, we 
have coping skills, we function, or we, or we don't, depending on what's happening, right? We freeze up, we withdraw, we're human beings. So when I talk, when I'm saying mental health care, I'm just talking about functioning in general. Some people just talk about, well, I'm not suicidal, or, or you know, I'm not this. Just as if some people talk about their body, right? They, they aren't going to the doctor for checkups. They're just going to say, well, I'm not sick. So there's the different approaches. But we're talking about the other things that exist in our human experience, not the body. Let's just say, right, our, our thoughts, our emotions, our coping skills, how we're functioning, how we're interacting with ourselves and our communities around us. So during this COVID year, quite a few things have happened. We'll start with the opioid crisis, which was in the news, right? Because that was something that people were watching. It was popularized because people were dying of accidental overdose with large companies were starting to get sued. Reminds me of years ago of um, the nicotine cigarette issue. It kind of mirrors it a little bit. You're too young for that. Maybe to remember all that. Now you just know cigarettes are bad. You know they lead at least to cancer. You can choose to do it or not. But And some... Companies are still paying for some of the cancer care for that, too. But nonetheless, that was largely in the news. And when COVID came and you close the center that's distributing Suboxone, somebody can't get it, or the resources that were going to develop easier access to drug treatment and follow-up are pulled into the state so that we can deal with a pandemic. So that's sort of the, at the bottom of the wrong on the totem pole, right? And so that's something I'll just say in Colorado, Colorado was doing a bang up job. Uh, the community members, the physicians, the hospital association coming together in the, the community mental health centers across the state dealing with the opioid crisis. And then when uh, COVID hit, but the numbers, the success that had been made over however many years, five years, was gone. The number of accidental deaths from from opiates went right back to where it was before. So uh, the rehab centers were closed. Eventually, when they opened up, they only took half as many people. For example, the rollout to for the state Medicaid in this state to uh, pay for these services. It wasn't the inpatient wasn't part of the healthcare on the state Medicaid. That rollout was put off for, for a whole year. Um, People in private practice would call you on your phone. Are you okay? But, you know, there's more of an emergent. Are we all taking care of ourselves and not getting COVID? And so that was kind of like, well, we'll worry about everyone's mental health later, right? So one example, our accidental deaths by um, opioid drug use skyrocketed, went right back to where we thought, oh, my God, we're in a crisis. We need to do something. And all the gains that were made were now gone. That's just in this state. I think nationally, I didn't look at that. Um, and, and I count that as mental health, right, too, because now people don't have access to their counselors, their treatment programs, to resources that they need. Then you have um, social isolation. So teens, all people are social beings, but teens, that's just one part of that, um, that part of your life, that your friends now are your priority. That's very common in, in, in development. And now you're isolated from your friends as a teen and teen mental health crisis, including numbers of suicide attempts is skyrocketing. They don't have the connection at school, their social clubs, their sports, 
potential for a scholarship. They could have gone to perform, whether it was in, in an instrument or in gymnastics or whatever programs. These things largely shut down, tried to come back in some kind of way, and then somebody would get COVID and they'd have to back off. And, and then when you're home, your parents are like, no, you can't go hang out with your friends. You're not going to the mall. Um, so this isolation in all age groups, we, but we've heard a lot about seniors, which that's true too, for sure. Um, but in, in the teen age group, that has really been a big deal. It's been a really big deal because they're already searching for their friendships, who they are, um, some independence. And it's basically like those needs don't matter right now, but that's what their needs are right now. So, so their emotional mental health in that age group has, has been hit pretty hard. The seniors, of course, too, because they're already isolated, already have limited visitors, smaller, smaller social circles. I did a uh, Zoom um, presentation interaction with a group of seniors who gathered at a workout place, gathered for some luncheons, and now we're all at home. But the leader is um, another uh, person I know through the Healing Touch community, wanted to keep that community cohesive in a way through Zoom and still brought in speakers once a month. They didn't have lunches, but they were still trying to speak with each other. And so in that forum, one month last year, we talked about mental health. And just this idea that, I mean, people were literally crying because the, the few connections and people that they touched um, and, and had physical interaction with, now they're entirely alone. So that affects people's emotional and mental health functioning too. That's another age group that's sorely been hard hit. And that's not counting if you live in a in um, an assisted living and your family can no longer visit you because they have to isolate visitors. And or if you're dying in the hospital and you have to see them on Zoom and say goodbye um, and, and you know facilitate that kind of thing. So though, but those age groups, but I wanted to mention teens because that's really been a hard hard group that's been hit with the social isolation. Well, let's talk about that group because this is the group that's the hardest hit, you know, millennials, Gen Z, and so forth since 2012, the year that the smartphone overtook the regular cell phone. Well, that was already a problem and we already know this. I, I haven't read the data recently that social media and this impressing one another while simultaneously being more isolated mindset already existed. It's not exactly the same thing that's happening with COVID, but suicide rates have already been skyrocketing over the last decade. We know this. Right. So it's, right. I, I'm almost hopeful, however crass that might sound, that as a result of the terrible mental health that's happening right now, especially with younger people, that we might wake up to the reality that maybe we don't need to rely on social media, for example, so heavily. Or maybe back to the data point, maybe the social dilemma docudrama was hitting on something, not just about individual liberty and our ability to keep our own data as our own, but also that we don't need to be manipulated for business gain in a way that leads to increased suicide rates. So this isolationism has only seemingly gotten worse since this COVID experience, but it's not entirely new. Well, well right. And, and it was, it's not entirely new before this 
I mean, the smartphone doesn't make it new either. It adds a different layer, a different dimension. You see it spike for different reasons, right? We need to be thoughtful and pay attention to what's happening, right? Um, it exponentially changed things during COVID. So will it go back to the usual social media problem before? I don't mean, I don't know that, but I was just saying really that the COVID exponentially changed it too, because now that's what all you have, your social media, your family that you're trying to become independent from just irritating you more. And you want to, and I'm not trying to be facetious, literally do whatever it takes to leave that house or leave this experience, right? It becomes that painful. Like I'm not coming out of my room. Like I'm just going to have to do X, Y, or Z or going to die. It just compounded and it wasn't a joke any, it's not a joke, right? And now you are only stuck with your smartphone if your parents haven't taken that away because you haven't come out of your room to do your chores or something. Um, and so it's made it at a real serious uh, point is, is what I wanted to make. But your point is is valid, right? That's going on. And that's a, in a way a whole nother side from COVID. Um, thing that I have a lot of opinions about because Family systems have control over generations. We'll say, well, I can't control my kid. Well, now they're watching too much TV. We just, you know, we used to call it a boob to people who didn't like the TV because they thought it changed their child forever. And it probably did, right? Um, and now the smartphone, I don't know what negative, I'm not raising a child right now with that, but um, comments they have about social medias and such things. And so it's that interaction of teenagers going against what their parents, Eventually, most of them come back around to what their parents said. But during that time period, kind of pushing against, are the rules still there? Can I do something different than my parents are saying? That doesn't matter if it was coming home before dark, if it was turning the TV off at a certain time, and now getting off your phone at a certain time. Now, true, exponentially different, again, with the smartphone, right, because of the data collection, because of the connectivity, completely, in a way, different, but it's the same interaction experience with your parents that happens at that age group, is what I'm saying. Um, so I have opinions about the smartphone just because it still has to do with the family system. Right. It does make you wonder, though, how do we balance that? Because I don't even think you would argue that we have to just go laissez-faire kids need to just get out and breathe in each other's faces during a pandemic we're not saying that obviously and i'm sure you're not saying that but a balance has to be met as you always told me you have to find balance because you can look at university systems today the universities really failed or maybe the counties that were in them i don't know all the jurisdiction of police forcing and things like that but we have people going back in person at school and i can attest for my university we had officially no cases spread from in-person classes. Zero. Now, I actually like online classes. I'm an exception. But for those who like in-person classes and they're still paying for them, to them, that seems ridiculous. How are we all online if nothing's happening in person? They have these new um, HEPA or filtration systems, or I forget the name exactly, but everything's working. What's our problem? But our problem is students are still getting sick because of partying, right? Getting out of the house. You want to be this contrarian, whether biologically at a certain age or socially developed at a certain age. That's an argument you could balance one way or another. But how do we balance that? Because to me, as someone who doesn't mind 
having some isolation time where I have goals that help me motivate so I don't need as much time with certain people. To me, it seems ridiculous that, oh, I'm going to go party even though we're getting people sick and my relative just died. I don't know how that happened, but I know I was sick at the party. Well, that's not helping anyone, right? So it's this weird balance of, to your point, which is certainly valid, we have real mental health problems and we, we, we want to be able to fight them. But also, we can't use it as an excuse to be irrationally irresponsible. I think when um, I will, I would, I would separate high school students from college age students, even if they live at home and go to community college. And the reason I would do that is because in high school, normal development to find some independence push me, pull me with what are the rules? How can I modify them that work better for me? And still, what are my parents willing to give and take? What's it, what's the give and take? But parents ultimately still have, potentially, I'd like to say control. That would be the way, it, ultimately, with some discussion and some, some growth, still have some control to say. And so then you can talk about how, do, how does that family system, how do those parents help this child who's struggling uh, get some of that. And so we can come up with those examples. And I've met some parents who've done a really bang up job. They've done a great job with that, honestly. And, and it would largely be things the university's doing. Have people separated a little bit. Just have your closest friends at a campfire outside, wear the masks, but we get to still run around and play this or do this or whatever. And so it's a, a lot more controlled, but parents could control that for high school students, even if they didn't want to, because they'd rather go somewhere with their friends without their parents, there is some opportunities. There's, there's a lot of opportunities there. College age students, the opportunities um, dwindle because now you're over the other line that I can make my own decisions at 20. And nobody can tell me I'm making a poor decision. You can, but I still not, might not listen to you, nor do you have the control Make now university has have some control on their campus sites in their buildings and that kind of thing. Communities have some control, as you saw, like you said, where you're at in Boulder, um, to some degree, but but largely you don't. So you have that need in a young young age group where they're their own adults making those decisions, and unless things were mandated, which still then you'd have to arrest people, right? Um, which still wouldn't stop it. Um, it's a, a different ball game to me with that age group and trying to meet the mental health needs of the folks in high school that you have some controls of trying to make that happen for them. And the kids at the next age group, young adults are making those decisions on their own largely. You know, some of them good. I'm gonna isolate as suggested by my parents or the news or my doctor and others making other decisions and spreading COVID like nuts. And, but I think it's, it's a, it's a harder um, thing to tackle, especially if you're on private property, right? Not, it's not a, a campus say, and you have a lot of um, people who might just might not because of their age group make those decisions. COVID numbers down. You see what I'm saying? Right. And that's a, a distinction I failed to make. And I'm glad you brought that up because you're right. In high school, even, you may not want to admit it. And I'm sure I didn't want to admit it. If your parents are paying for your house, if your parents are paying for your car, your gas money, then 
there is this social agreement, at least, that you follow their rules. Because if you don't, in theory, they have the enforcement mechanism. Now, that's seen seemingly less today uh, because of the uh, growth of entitlements, potentially as a response of older generations who had it tougher and they wanted better life for their kids. That's another conversation to have, this, this growth in entitlement. But you're right. There is at least a de facto enforcement mechanism there in place. Whereas in college, although more kids than you would think, or maybe not, are having everything paid for by family or things like that, just because of how expensive it is, only some people can attend. And I'm very grateful I'm able to. There is this almost cognitive dissonance in college where there is a separationism that it strikes me that a lot of parents don't mind. But at the same time, they're still having these things subsidized by parental income or something like that. So uh, that's almost a third question of can we combat the cognitive dissonance of collegiate life so we don't have to go down that route. But I want to acknowledge that you made a great point. Um, There is a power difference here, whether in practice or at least in perception, because in practice, it might not be all that much different. I don't know. It, It very well may be, but it at least is perceived that way. Mm -hmm. Correct. And so, right. Technically, a parent who still has a lot of power because they're paying all the bills could still could still make some set some boundaries and rules. It's not common. I'm just going to tell you that right now. For the parents who can afford to pay for their kids to go to school and still manage to do all that for them, it's highly unlikely they're going to set boundaries at that age. It's not it's not that common. It's not as common. For COVID, for example, maybe for something drastic, but they're not going to just say, oh, I'm not going to pay for your school tomorrow. I mean, you know, this semester is not that, com- it's not common. So in essence, it still serves as if they're making their own decisions about what they're doing with their time, even though there are some folks, but there's a lot of folks that, I mean, you're talking about a college campus, but there's people that age in all walks of life that are not on college campuses that are still doing the same thing at that age, right? Because they want to be around their friends. Their parents, even if they live at home, have just come to some agreement that they can no longer tell them what to do. But you're right, they could, right? They could say, I'm not going to let you live here if you do that. I mean, there's a lot of things you could say, but it's not common once that person passes passes a certain threshold for COVID, maybe for something extreme. But. Well, we've been talking loosely in a quantitative way, maybe not with numbers, but in what is happening and let's explain it. But I want to shift this to something else you're interested in, parenting, since we're on the topic. Let's go more qualitative and subjective here. What do you think is happening today to that generational difference I mentioned? What is going on with the apparent rise in entitlement that some people would deem as the requisite to the social justice warrior. I don't think you should be able to conflate the two because there's political reasons behind that as well. But but what's going on here? And does this have societal implications? Like we said, is this potentially an implication to this party mindset in college during a pandemic that I'm entitled because my parents never taught me or didn't have a household that expected consistent boundaries? Um, not necessarily beating your kid, although you could take it that route if you want to. But if you don't have this consistency, it could lead to this entitlement. What do you think about that? And have you experienced or seen research on 
how to combat this or what's the most effective ways to go around it? I know there was a couple questions in there, but I really want to get your general understanding on this. So I'm going to start by talking about entitlement because we it's been used largely in the media. Talk about um, I know white privilege is different than entitlement, but sometimes they get they get overlapped a lot. Um, totally different, totally different things. Entitlement still sometimes gets kind of stuck to groups of folks, right? With more money. Uh, people whose parents have more power in the community, um, people who ex not had to experience hardships, whatever they were, whether they were abused or poverty or broken homes or, or whatever. Um, but I would start by saying, first and foremost, we, meaning parents, because parents, besides any genetic factors that we have no control over, largely create the next generation. I mean, media plays a part, what they hear from their friends plays a part, but that doesn't come until later, right? So you're setting that foundation from day one. We as parents, and, and really a lot more often the, the moms and dads even today, maybe the next generation will be different, but over time, moms raise the next generation. So entitlement is growing pervasively across racial lines, across socioeconomic classes. Entitlement meaning somehow it sounds a little bit like individualism and independence. Somehow I should get what I want when I want it, right? That kind of entitlement. Um, it's pervasive, like I said, across socioeconomic classes, across what your parents, you know, where they came from or what their experience is, what your socioeconomic class. There's just we have been raising next generation and the one after that to not want to feel bad and hurt. And, and a lot of individuals have an opinion. You've heard them all. Not everybody should get a trophy. It should be competitive. Um, I can't tell my kids no because I always got told no and I wanted them to get what they wanted. Or, you know, there's a lot of philosophies. Well, my kids would listen if I was allowed to spank them, but now it's against the law. So we get caught up in a narrow minded one conversation. Should we or shouldn't we spank? Should we or shouldn't we um, allow X, Y, and Z? And I, I like to look at it more broadly as an approach to parenting. The thing that we're not doing while at the same time we want to give our kids more, right? They deserve it. This is my kid. If their kids get it. My kids get it. And parents are feeding into that too, right? Kids aren't learning that on their own. But as a whole, it isn't should I shouldn't spank. Should they shouldn't be able to go with their friends? Should they have to go to bed at this time or not this time? It's not a one issue in my mind. It's an approach to helping the next generation of human beings understand how to think, make decisions, and glean the pros and cons, the good and the bad that comes from that decision that they made, with the guidance of a system that's supporting them, doing it, like their parents, the church, whatever, you know, whatever you value. It's not should they shouldn't go to church. It doesn't me, it's broader than that. Regardless of you choose this, if it's a bedtime and go dating in church, fine. If it's 
They can stay up till midnight and do X, Y, Z. Fine. But as an approach, I'm giving over to the next generation in the incremental moment, depending on the age. How do we make a decision about that? And you make it. Then you see what happens, even though you thought it through, and then you live with it. And we're here for you, and we're we're kind of your bumpers as you go. And I don't think um, I think largely that's where I would start talking about this. How are we giving control early to the next generation, right? Our children to say, "I'm empowered." Not empowered because I bought you the candy when you screamed at the checkout or because you whined and slammed your door when I wouldn't let you go to a friend's house or, you know, depending on the age of what we're talking about. That's not the issue. The issue is, am I teaching you how to make decisions and be dissatisfied and to be proud when this turns out this way? Am I giving you power in your life? Not stuff. And I don't care. Buy a bunch of stuff, too. Or don't buy a bunch of stuff too. But if you haven't given, let the child stand in their own power at every age they can in the safest way possible. You haven't taught by the time they're an adult how to be empowered and not entitled. That makes sense? That makes perfect sense. And ironically enough, I'm convinced that empowerment isn't through giving your kid more. Because they're hearing you say these two things and they're like, oh, that's the same thing. But really, from my perspective, and you and I have talked about this some, so I'm sure you can elaborate on it more. It's in fact a consistency of parenting that leads to a static framework that isn't going to bend in some way that leads to your empowerment. For example, uh, there's, there's plenty of cases, whether family members, friends, news, you see this all the time. Uh, you go to a movie theater and your kid wants popcorn and you say actually you just went to the dentist no popcorn for you and then they they cry and then you give them popcorn anyways because you feel bad well maybe you've made them feel better and maybe that makes you feel better internally but now you've changed the the framework you've moved the goalposts so rather than them building their own power their own responsibility their own ability to get their own popcorn so to speak when they get older you've actually just seeded over some of your power to them rather than build their own power. Does that seem like a fair um, representation of what you're saying, or at least um, something similar that you can build off of? I was going to say what you said at the end there. You aren't teaching empowerment, decision-making. You're giving away your power as the adult. And what the child is learning, not that they have their own internal sense of power, confidence, and so on, that when they push on the walls of the only security they know, which are their parents, they're going to bend, that they're going to break. And maybe they're happy for a moment, but it creates an insecurity and a lack of power and actually a level of anxiety and something that I would call can develop into mental health issues. Because even if your um, boundary was no popcorn, I don't care, say no popcorn, you're at the dentist. You had a decision, you made it for a logical reason. It could, I could have made a different decision. I could have said you can have a little bit of popcorn. But whatever it was, when you let your child know that you are powerless, there's anxiety. 
in the child that you are responsible for because the system that protects them keeps them safe is telling them they're powerless and so yeah they have now your power which creates anxiety but they haven't been empowered you don't know what their power would look like all they're watching their role model give away their power Does that make sense that makes perfect sense and you can see how that damages someone's perception of the world as they get older you know you see this most commonly today with the quote unquote karens of the world but it it builds this perception that i'm going to get what i want because you grew up with as you might call it an insecurity an expectation maybe that the walls can bend to suit your needs and combining that with an individualistic society certainly doesn't help anyone but now you have any time rather than the normal being people don't have to do things for me i'm not entitled but when they do i'm appreciative it flips to i'm expecting things for me but on the off chance someone doesn't bend to my will to say it crassly or doesn't bend to meet my expectation that i'm going to get really upset i'm the one who has to yell at the manager to hit this this um, uh, nail on the head as seen today. So you can really see direct consequences of this action or rather inaction in developing a child that you're parenting. So let's talk about a stereotypical Karen that has been in the news news and it's, and it's been a you know, white middle-aged white person. Let's imagine it's, it's anybody who feels entitled. Let's just use that word for anyone who feels entitled. Um, so instead of standing in their own power and security, gathering information and making a decision, anxiety is what has been created. I'm feeling anxious and somehow you are supposed to take care of it for me. And I'm in, and I'm, that's been my life experience always. And so if you're not hearing me, I'm going to keep going until you hear me that you're supposed to make me feel less anxious and more secure. And it doesn't matter if it's rational, right, at this point, because now you are over there with a dog and you're black. And I don't even rationally, maybe I don't know why. I mean, maybe if I peeled it apart, not sure why it makes me nervous. We could go into that a whole racial issue. But nonetheless, in that example that we've been seeing um, a lot in the news, calling folks a Karen, right? It's still the development of a person who learned not about their own personal power, but that I can take your power and you can make me less anxious if I scream loud enough. That's still what has the same dynamic, but now we have a generation of adults doing that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it's interesting how this conversation hasn't been had enough because maybe the the memification, the laughter behind, oh, these people are so ridiculous, gets in the way of us addressing the problems. Because you're right, uh, there there's a reason behind anyone's action. Now, again, those reasons could be societal, they could be individual, they could be because of their parents or a dash of biology. All of those things are true, but there is a reason. And this is one example where you can see that that chain link from point A to point B with very little deviation. You can you can fill in every single puzzle piece along the way and it still makes sense. So I'm, I'm just grateful that you're 
willing to address this? Somebody who's not intentionally trying to change to explain to someone, even if they understand it, how to do something uh, in an empowering way, if their environment doesn't reinforce it, it's never going to make sense because they now understand their environment as it is. They understand their environment reacts to the way they behave as it is. And they could then just learn a tool not to go so far to get hit, for example, but they haven't learned empowerment, right? Because they've already learned how they interact with their environment. And that's why parenting and parenting next generation is to me so critical. You have control over creating an environment that will support that person learning to be empowered. Once you're an adult, that takes a lot of effort on that individual um, without reinforcement from their environment. And over time, the environment will react differently to them if they react different. And there is some reinforcement, right? But it's starkly um, a different curve than when you're parenting the child. Does that make sense? That does make sense. And it makes me think of how we address this because intervening on some government level isn't going to make people happy. Uh, education is really the best way to do it in a way that doesn't remove someone's liberty. But then how do you do that? Is it the education system needs to implement a critical thinking class, which is something I, I'm a proponent of. But then how do you do that? Right? How do you teach people along with the American values that might be implicit with K through 12? How do you teach them a good way to raise your kids to not be entitled and to be thoughtful and all these things we value when those are so qualitative. It's so hard to grasp, right? You can teach someone algebra and if they get the right answer, that's easy. Great. Your kid knows algebra, give them the standardized test. And generally speaking, they know algebra, but how do you teach someone critical thinking and parenting skills? Because by the time they're adults, telling someone how to raise their kid is not something parents want to hear. I mean, just try it with someone who has a dog taking a hike at the park next time you go to a park. Say, hey, uh, you shouldn't have that kind of leash for your dog. They're going to think you're ridiculous and run away from you. They don't want to talk about it because that's their their dog, right? A kid is only more extreme. That's their their last name being carried on or, or whatever the reasoning is. So I, I don't really have an answer here. And I wonder if you have any inclination about the best approaches to combating this problem in a way that would be effective and accepted by a large amount of people. So that's been addressed in a lot of ways, not per se to deter entitlement, that wasn't the goal, but to make better parents. So there are a lot of systems in place to do that. Then you're just talking again about an isolated situation. You have to feed your children. You can't leave them alone under a certain age. We're mandating things by government. You're not allowed to spank your kids. I personally didn't hit my kids, but if somebody's style of spanking works for them because it's an intervention that's thought out for the empowerment of their child, I don't know if hitting would ever qualify for that, but there's reasons why you're parenting a certain way versus reaction because you're mad. I mean, parenting, regardless, even if you take away everyone's their rights, but you're doing it out of, I'm mad and I'm, you know, going to usurp power. Again, it 
goes against what your goal is as a parent if you were thoughtful enough to have a goal that my job is to create a functioning empowered confident adult this is my job every single day i mean it's exhausting but it's my job right and stray from it and then you have to remind yourself what that goal is um so instead largely um governing systems come in and say you can't spank your kids or you have to go to this class or they have to be in school everything i'm saying is mandated by law your child has to be in school um you know they you can't hit your kids or somebody could call child protection you can't your kids do drugs and alcohol some are obvious some of them are not obvious to you you're um but they're mandated they're all mandated like you said mandated doesn't work it's not doesn't work right people raise their kids the way they want to raise them and then you find the only skill that person has is i was spanked and i turned out fine and i'm going to spank my kids but now you won't let me okay if i do it again you're going to make me go to a parenting class what's the parenting class going to teach me I mean, I think it's very superficial, uh, but we have been able to do so far because we can only really talk about, I see this behavior, this behavior isn't, isn't, you shouldn't do that. You should do a different behavior. What I'm talking about, which I think we could educate on, uh, but I don't think it's the education system to do it. Like critical thinking class is great, but is there going to be value for that person if it's not reinforced in their society? They get what they want a lot easier at home and in the world by being entitled. Probably not going to utilize it or think it much about it, right? So that's a lot of burden on the education system to not just teach um, STEM, but to also create functioning, culturally competent human beings. That's a lot just for like, a teacher to do a system like that to do too, right? You have to do it with along with the parenting system. So, but to answer that question, I have thought about this a lot. So you back up, it isn't about whether you do X, Y, or Z. Obviously there's lines, you have to feed your children. I mean, there's some some lines that are important, right? Um, you have to largely be their protector when they're small and these kinds of things. Within your rational reason for a nine o'clock bedtime or a 10 o'clock bedtime or a midnight this or that, let's just say the rules don't matter as much. Let's not focus on that as much. Let's talk about the how. Let's talk about the how. How do you set boundaries? How do you set rules? The example that you gave was very, very good. It was that I made a decision that I thought was in your best interest you said no, and I said, okay, then that rule doesn't exist anymore. That's the how that we have to back up to. It isn't that you did or didn't want them to have popcorn. That's Nobody should teach you that. You have a right to give them popcorn or not give them popcorn. Or not just a right. That's your dynamic with your child. That's how you think, whatever. It isn't really the rules as it is the how. The how and the why. And I don't think people go into parenting thinking, wow, I've just signed up for a job that's the most important job I'll ever have in my life. You just think, oh, there's gonna have a cute little baby that's gonna love me and I'll love them and we'll live happily ever after. We're not thinking about the level of duty, uh, the level of requirements for the job, right? What's the goal of that job? Um, but some people don't have the same goal I have too. So if someone doesn't buy into that goal, then it, it wouldn't work anyway.
Uh, what if their goal is just let them do it? I mean, I don't know. They could have different goals for their kids too. So on that job, I think we've talked about this in the past. Don't you have like a few specific things, like a list of things that good parents can do? I do. I do. Thank you, Colton, for, for bringing this up. Um, I haven't published it anywhere. I've written it down. I'd like it to be in my first book and then maybe write expound um, in another book because my first book is um, not published yet, but it's um, a story. You know, it's just a, a fictional book. But then take this and put it into more useful workbook. And and what I've written down is what I have found that regardless of your rules, like I said, right, what you think they should go to bed or not have a phone or have a phone or, or, or whatever rules, these are things that people could add. And I really think it's important all the time, but particularly when you're raising your children. Um, there are things that you could, that could, even one or two of them, right, it's not an all or none thing, could add value not, not value because it's better than going to church, but value in the goal of empowering, providing some level of empowerment and reminding ourselves that we're helping somebody become a competent member of society who can make decisions and not be entitled and those kinds of things we were just talking about. Does that make sense? Sure. So, so I can review them. So is that okay with you? Yeah, go ahead. Give a few examples at least because I'm curious to pick your mind because you and I have been talking very high level and I like to talk high level about important topics, but it's also great for people listening. They think, okay, these are all good fluffy statements that I want to institute in my life. Are there any specific ways to do that how you had just mentioned? Yeah, so let me pick a couple. One we were just talking about, it, it was not um, it was not directly stated is to set boundaries and be clear. And so, and then you have two parents in the home or, or a grandparent in the home as well. You can't have people changing those. You have to be on the same page. That's the most effective way to have a secure home. And it doesn't matter, like I said, let's take bedtime. If bedtime's midnight or bedtime is eight o'clock. So kids have, you know, whatever reason the parents think one's better than the other, the point is that everybody is in agreement, in agreement that that would be the latest that you could stay up on X, Y, Z day. So, so whatever rule you pick, right? There's a clear boundary. Everybody understands it. And largely, everybody follows it. It doesn't mean one's better than the next. It doesn't mean, well, nine o'clock's still okay too, but we've made an agreement that we're going to follow this structure. And, and of course, there's always exceptions to rules. It's a party or something going on, right? But what happens when, as I mentioned, the child's always going to push on the boundaries. It doesn't matter if you're like, I've worked so hard and I've given you everything you've ever wanted. You wanted a 10 o'clock bedtime. I got that for you. You wanted to get your nose pierced. I did that for you. It's not, that's not the point. It creates anxiety and the kids are always going to push on the boundary always going to push on it you're like no it's still that's still what it is that's still the bedtime so it's okay yep it's bedtime and you're like well i can't stand it they keep saying i'm the worst parent in the world who doesn't let makes you go to bed earlier than everybody else i mean there might be a reason to read you know investigate what your rule is but they're going to push on it so hard you're going to think made an irrational decision but that's not the point the point is 
they're supposed to push on it. They want to make sure it's secure. They want to make sure that it's not going to fall over, that you're not going to give away your power just because they pushed on the wall. So keep the boundaries, make sure they're clear, follow them. Sounds simple. It's not easy to do. And some of the examples I just gave. And, and another point that goes with that, that I'll, I'll, I'll bring up, and then maybe I'll bring up the third one. And, and that is not to take that personally. That's a pretty tough, that's a pretty tough uh, thing not to do when it's personal. It's your child and they're telling you that you are the suckiest parent that ever existed in the world. I mean, it's pretty hard to say that's not personal. Um, but it's hugely important and valuable when you can do it. That they're going through this stage, this time in their life, for whatever reason they have, and they need me to be secure. And they're checking out if I am or if I'm not. And I, I need to stick to that because that's what they need from me and that's what they're really doing. I'm really not a bad parent, right? But if you get caught in that, all kinds of dynamic, which people do, right? All kinds of dynamics. So this idea that boundaries are important, generally speaking, they're not perfect, but they're very important. And not taking it personally when the kid pushes on it because that's what they're going to do. That's their job. That's what's going to happen. And, and, and another one I would just mention is that this teaching of empowerment and critical thinking. And there's specific ways that that can be done within a system that can be taught. And that's why I said it can be taught, but not required to take critical thinking classes before you have children or out of parent classes before you have children. But those are those and those kind of wrap up on some of the things we talked about, because those alone can help minimize this kind of entitlement uh, generation that's coming. It's been coming. That's pervasive. That alone, without these other any other things that I think have, can add value to your home, and so and because this entitlement is creating a lot more problems than I than we knew it was that we knew about. Right, we were just parenting our kids. Well, thank you for sharing those specifics because those are, ironically enough, topics I talk about a lot at a high level, as I said, but. I never can quantify them in quite as succinct of a way. And that's invaluable because there's so many self-help books out there that are, oh, high-level talk for 100 pages, and then you're not quite sure what to do, and you spent six bucks. But those are specific, tangible things that anyone could implement, having kids. And it's going to sound synonymous with a lot of things I've mentioned in the past, just because you are my mom, so I'm sure I regurgitate some similar ways of thinking. Uh, but thank you for sharing specifics there because we don't get enough value in that in the world and even in our regular conversations everyone talks oh i don't like this group of people just because i don't i don't feel right around them or you shouldn't raise your kid like that because x y or z or in fact there is no x y or z that's the point right so have, having these specifics is really nice so thank you for sharing those and i will mention i could drill down to a hundred examples in every situation if somebody had this is my situation. What's your example? So people are welcome. I don't know if you'll put it on the bottom there when you post the podcast to go to my website and email me. And I absolutely have no problem giving very specific. I'm not a child ex expert, child mental health expert. Um, it's not a certification. It's just a generality taking into the way I was raised, what I learned as a parent, and what I understand as a therapist and somebody who works in mental health. Um, together with some things that can help us empower our children um, and actually make our own job as a parent a little bit easier. So people are can 
really emailing. Yes, and uh, to your your point, um, any guest on the podcast that wants to share it, and and you have shared ahead of time with me, so I'll be sure to include it. Uh, any way to you know see the newest book or check out the, their business or whatnot that that of course is actually in the descriptions and um, the center of love and acceptance uh, is one of those cases. Um, so I want to go into another topic that might be our last topic of conversation to wrap things up because it has interesting interplay into so many aspects of our world today, depending on your background. And that's a sense of spirituality. I know you're someone who's interested in the topic and you and I have had so many conversations just personally about religion and spirituality generally. Uh, Maybe I'll start broadly. What is spirituality to you? What are its facets? What are things that it's not? Because that's a, a part of spirituality no one seems to talk about. What is not spiritual or what is not um, bringing value to your life in some way? What does that really mean to you as someone just with your own personal experiences like anyone else combined with your knowledge of mental health and things like that? I'll answer that question if I can by just not just by talking about my journey in spirituality and then I had to take a serious look at that when I want to raise my children just like your mental health physical health You're looking at it for yourself and then you have children and you think well now I'm responsible for them in their physical health mental health spiritual health and teaching them how to then go forward and take care of that for themselves and so it's interesting because it's more common from my experience in at least this country that folks are either religious or not religious mostly meaning I don't know. The religion's not cutting it for me, so whatever. So in some ways, there's a large possibility that we're neglecting what I would call spiritual health just by rejecting religion. Because to me, religion can serve some spiritual growth for you, for sure. But it doesn't have to be religion to grow your spiritual health. So that journey has changed for me based on when I was a young adult, then I had children to try to help them grow their spirituality and then teach them how to do it themselves, right? And we're at a, at a loss. It's not something we add to the school curriculum. It's not something that um, is as much out in self-health books as, as mental health and coping is. I still would define it as a separate realm. I mean, they're integrated, right? Like circles, like inside, is your spiritual self and you have your mental health and physical health they're all part of the same circle but you have smaller circles on the inside or maybe they're all the same size i mean i don't know how the visual needs to go they're interconnected but they're also to me i'm just speaking about them separately right now if you want to talk about how do i maintain health in my spiritual health or you could just of course not think that you had spiritual health but i personally do answer your question. And so I know I've mentioned to you before, there's value in practicing spiritual health, just like there's value in practicing mental health and physical health in various ways. And all I can do is take you down roads or show you ways of things that that I know so far, you find some other ways, tell me. 
Um, but in spiritual health, I would say that is a connection to your core, to who you are, to what you're doing here. And more broadly, to your service to humanity through you. And I do think a lot of folks connect with it in some way in, in with that definition, whether it's through a church or not through a church, whether they talk about the universe or God or what this religion says, those are all, to me all different things really, but people are reaching for how do I find connection with myself, who I am and why I'm here. Philosophy does the same thing um, or hopes to do the same thing for people. It's been something people have grappled with since humanities existed. So for me, my spiritual health is connecting to that which I cannot see, part of me that drives me, my heart, it's love, it's what I'm doing on earth. That makes sense? That does make sense. And that's a more common approach, an increasingly common approach, at least in America, as time moves on. People are uh, at least in the trends, moving away from an organized sense of religion, a Southern Baptist or a Muslim or something like that in, in America, at least, and going towards more of a spiritual sense, like you said, this third part of your being, the, the physical, the mental, and the spiritual. Now, anyone who's listened to the podcast in the past will know this is one point that you and I actually disagree on slightly. Um, the only spiritual sense that I find in the world is this idea of the numinous, you know, the beauty in the world, the amazing euphoria you get when you have group chant, things like that. And to me, spiritual is just a semantic phrase. It's just, we can redefine it as spiritual if you want. I have no problem with that, but there's nothing inherently to delineate it. But at the same time, even though I have this perspective, A, I'm open-minded, which is important generally. But B, I can understand that that gap you're talking about, this this hole that religion has traditionally held, that many religious people will say is this God-shaped hole in your heart. That's the common Christian uh, expression, at least. And I, and I can understand that. We want to find deeper meaning. We want to find purpose. And as you touched on, this is often something that philosophy tries to unpack, and it's not always successful. So we do what we're comfortable with, which may be the religious we're brought up, other religious teachings we have as we were brought up, or or something of the sort. Um, but with that said, though, and, and empathizing with with what you're what you're saying and where you're coming from, I want to narrow this back down to COVID because we're in such a crazy time. What experiences or or techniques or even just approaches you've learned or or or, or developed? can help people in some kind of spiritual way? How can people, at least to to your point of knowing the how, more importantly than the what, how can people ascertain what works for them to help with their spiritual growth, which could also, again, have ties with physical health or mental health or things like that? So there is, in my opinion, professional opinion as well, a large focus on trying and see how it works for you. I could take a narrow approach and say, 
I'm going to teach you tapping. Do you tapping exactly the way I tell you? You should feel better. I feel better. Don't you feel better? You're not doing it right then if you're not feeling better. And I, you know, I, don't, I don't know, you and I have ever spoken about tapping, but it's a technique. And, and actually the person who, I forgot his name, developed it. It's not even like trademarked and expensive. It's free. It's free to give away. It's a tapping technique. A lot of folks are familiar with it. Um, and that may tap into spiritual health or mental health. But I'm just using that as an example. Um, it still doesn't mean it's going to matter to you. You might not be able to wrap your brain around it if it doesn't have any logic or any data behind it in your you know, case, for example, somebody else, maybe it's just like, I, it, I can't do it. Like, I don't know. Like for me to then say, you should be able to, even if I took something else like cognitive behavioral therapy, where there's a lot of data behind it, if, or, or brief focus therapy that you should be done within two, two or three sessions and your issue is resolved and it works pretty effectively momentarily, the person, it might not work for them. Right. So in terms of your spiritual health and this dealing with COVID. Starting something new, I'll back up and say this: starting something new when you're in a time of stress is not always easy. Think of starting something new when you want to You're feeling comfortable, you're calm, you chose it yourself. It's still not easy. You decide you're going to learn to meditate. You're calm, you're intentional, you read a book, you like it, you want to practice it. What if I'm telling you, if you just calm down and meditate, you'll be okay. I wouldn't say it like that, but in essence, that's what I'm telling you. But right now you're in a crisis. You don't know how to meditate. You're anxious. You don't even know what that means. And so the effort put into it is going to be largely different than the effort put into it by somebody who's now in a space. They're open to it. They want it. They read about it. They're calm and they're giving it a try on their own to even know if it's even going to work, right? Um, so there are a plethora of tools, but this idea that you'll trust yourself in trying, and if it doesn't work, how do we adapt it to work for you? If not, try something else. And so that's where a professional therapist that you have a connection with, right? Not just any therapist, somebody you have a connection with and trust. That feedback is just like going to the doctor when you try an antidepressant or a blood pressure medicine cholesterol medicine, you go back and give feedback. This one's not working for me. This one's causing this for me. There's this feedback loop that has to take place. And the feedback loop could be within yourself. You could have Googled something on the internet during COVID and thought, okay, I'm going to start trying this at home, but there needs to be a feedback loop. And that needs to be absolutely accepted and part of it without judgment rather than I failed at this again, and now I've just compounded my problems. You know, so this openness to this feedback loop to find a good fit for you, and that's really where professionals come in, whether it's on medicine, whether it's, and that is to me, there's this niche for why therapy is helpful. People use it for different reasons and, and, and so on, but specifically for a goal to have a feedback loop just there for you. And, and that is important, and what happened during COVID is that, of course, people are isolating more. They're not going to their offices, but you can still have the feedback loop on Zoom and over the phone. And I think there's still a lot of value with that. You see what I'm saying? So really, you're you're saying a sense of accountability. Uh, this someone you could be reliant on, or someone who you trust. That sense, and maybe that person is you. Even if you're 
if you're self-aware and able to self-manage well enough, that this is really at the core, or at least an aspect of how to improve, particularly in a time as crazy as right now. It really is. And anytime that you are just at a space, it doesn't have to be a world pandemic. It could be a pandemic in your own mind or in your own family or, you know, some crisis or situation that you really need help. And like I said, trying something new, learning a new skill, trying to manage it differently than the skills you already have is very hard when the stress is high. So having, whether it's, so that there's accountability, so that you feel supported and like people have your back, even almost physically imagine what it's like when you're trying to lift something, but somebody has the other side. Somebody is holding your back so that you aren't hurt. Critical when you're doing it under high stress, right? So a time like COVID or any other crisis, absolutely the reason to have that, have that professional support. Or like you said, yourself, if you're already self-aware enough, but you have to go through this loop, right? Because now the coping that you normally had isn't working as well as it, it did before. That makes sense. That does make sense. And I think that's a good place to, to end on, um, a tangible foundational uh, perspective on how to approach this, this time, because this podcast isn't a PSA. But it is nice to try to gain those nuggets of wisdom whenever I'm able to have these conversations with people like you. And I'm lucky that I was able to be raised in a household who happened to be ran by you. So it really gave me 18 years of bonus time to have these conversations. But many people don't. And these are invaluable. So I really appreciate you um, sitting down and talking with me, Mom. I think this is a great conversation. Yeah, thanks, you, Col thanks Colton. I, I do want to say I really appreciate um, because one of the things I think you've just done for me in this podcast, but I believe probably you're doing for other folks, getting information and chance to have a dialogue about topics, which is nice. But you're giving a voice to a lot of different topics and the people who care about giving voice to those topics and you're giving them a space to do it. And that's what it felt like to me, um, an open, loving space to give voice to something, for example, that I care a lot about. So I really appreciate that. I'm sure you'll do it for other people. Sure, sure. And that's that really is the goal. You you hit the nail on the head. So I'm I'm glad uh, it was felt on your end that same way. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you for sitting down and talking with me. I'm sure we will talk some more, not on the podcast as well, as I did come out of your womb. <laughs> thank you, Cole.